Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What should we call this, Nick? Um... Mini cabinet. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> the, the, the poisonous mini cap. Let's <laughs> do oh, no, that's too weird. Hello, welcome to the Poisonous Cabinet 10th edition bonus episode, Expert Witness. If you tuned into episode 10, you'll know we discussed the case of the infamous Victorian serial killer, Marianne Cotton. Ooh, bad lady. Well, we thought her case was just too big to go unpicked at. So Nick and I decided to bring in a special guest, psychotherapist Rowana Bond, to help us dissect the case. And to drink more cocktails, as always. Now, you may be wondering why I'm doing this intro alone. Well, firstly, one of my audio files corrupted after recording, so apologies if I sound a bit different to the others on this episode. And secondly, by the time we started this episode, we'd all had one of Nick's lethal cocktails and some wine, and we forgot how to do an introduction. So, it's just easier this way. Anyway, enjoy our bonus episode, Mary Ann Cotton, Expert Witness. Please be advised, this episode focuses on the psychology of serial killers and filicide and may touch on areas that people find upsetting. Thank you for joining us on the first of our extra episodes. Um, as ever, you are joined by me, Sinead. And me, Nick. And our special guest for the week. Our guest is Rowana Bond, psychotherapist to the stars. I mean, that's definitely not true. <laughs> yeah. Nice to be here. Hello, Miss Rowe. Rowana Bond, or Rowe, as we call her, is a psychotherapist, uh, an expert, if you will, an expert witness to our many, many cases. And we've decided to invite her on to analyse one of the cases that we've discussed in episode 10, the case of Marianne Cotton, for Rowana to lend her few points on what was up with that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That is the technical term for it, I believe. <laughs> that is what we say. But Ro, who has her speciality is personality disorders. She is an expert in this field. She's a lot of knowledge about female criminals. She is a bona fide expert, unlike me and Nick. <laughs> yes. <very laughs> and I so. really enjoy cocktails. How are you, Ro? I'm very good, thank you. I'm, I'm slightly merry after uh, Nick's arsenic and lace bonanza cocktail that he made first during that episode. Which uh, is pure alcohol, turns out. <laughs> Enjoy them very much. And we have enjoyed them. Oh, we've enjoyed them. And now we're just drinking whatever else is in the house to continue this episode and keep the merry feeling going. Ro, how are you coping with lockdown? Uh, I'm all right. I think uh, I think everyone's having such a kind of existential experience at the moment, aren't they? You're kind of 
bit more faced with your own mortality than you would normally be on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, I think those thoughts are there. But on the other hand, it's all so surreal. There's another part of you that just kind of gets on with it in a way because it's, it's all gone a bit mad. So you just sort of have to put one foot in front of the other and keep going out the door. And that no, you're not allowed out the door. No out of the door. <laughs> <laughs> one foot in front of the other, very much inside the house, one I think you'll find. in front of the other foot into the kitchen. That's where the snacks are. That's where we'll go. <laughs> Just up to the threshold. One foot up to, up to the other, up to the threshold. Well, I know quite a few people who are loving it, actually, in, a, in another way, because, you know, you haven't got much else you can be doing. So you can justifiably watch TV, eat snacks, drink drink <laughs> just drink and nick you're still fine i take it i'm still i'm still fine i'm sitting i'm sitting here sitting here fine. <laughs> that, that's basically isolation life what goes through people's heads i'm sitting here i'm sitting here no, i'm still sitting here <laughs> it's great podcast banter nick <laughs> I'm, I'm still sitting here in a minute i might sit over there <laughs> god life's thrilling So this week we have been discussing the case of Marianne Cotton, which was covered in episode 10. Crazy, crazy woman, a big, big poisoner in the scheme of the Victorian poisoners and the scheme of poisoners of all time. What the hell goes through a poisoner's mind? Ro, let's start off with why arsenic? The greatest poisoner of them all, perhaps? It's a good question. So... In the sort of early 19th century, at that point, scientific testing just wasn't available. They didn't have the tools, obviously, yet then developed them. So basically, poisoning flourished, for want of a better word, um, <laughs> at the beginning of the, of the 1800s, because people realised they could kill their relatives, essentially, or anybody liked, really, uh, and get away with it because they, they couldn't test it. And the thing with arsenic is, it's basically untraceable. In fact, it remained untraceable until about the 1920s so a long long way down the line from where Marianne Cotton was doing her work and I think when people cottoned onto this um, (laughs) (laughs) that was unintentional Um, (laughs) but basically what they realized was it was a great way to you know if you've got a a wealthy relative who's just been hanging around a bit too long and you want to get your hands on their money well then here's a brilliant way to get rid of them and you can't be detected you can't be traced that did start to change so later a bit further down into the 1800s they did um they sort of started to develop the skills to to sort of isolate and identify different chemical compounds and when that happened then actually they got much more sophisticated in in being able to to trace and i think with this case you see the beginnings of of that and that they did eventually manage to identify that it was arsenic that killed the sun but you know pretty limited because the defense for marianne cotton was that it you know arsenic was in the wallpaper uh and so he could have just absorbed it by virtue of being in the house it was everywhere wasn't it yes yeah and you could get hold of arsenic very very easily as you said it was quite commonplace bizarrely for you know housewives and people to go out and and bring some back into the home for, for various different uses. So partly, I guess, availability, you know, ease of access. We've done this now for 10 episodes and we have these people who killed either one or two people or some cases, hundreds of people. From a psychological point of view, what is it that actually drives these people to do the things that they do? And especially we're talking about Marianne Cotton. What was it in her upbringing in her makeup that created this monster there is the the sort of million dollar question isn't it i think uh maybe the most important thing to say is that i don't think anybody is born uh, bad or you know there is no intrinsic evil that doesn't exist Ooh. 
in Ooh, in my opinion. That's interesting. There's so much out there that people claim some people are just born bad, but you don't agree I with don't that. I don't agree with that, no. I think uh, I think it's true that we're all born blank, blank slates, you know, blank canvas, and our experiences, sort of the environment around us, when we're growing up, the relationships we have or don't have shape us, and then you, you adapt to the world in particular ways. You know, there are arguments for saying, well... This person went through similarly, you know, upsetting or traumatic experiences and they haven't turned out to be a serial killer, which is true. Mm. But really, overall, it's about how people respond to what they're given. So I guess my sort of main answer to your question, Nick, of what drives someone to kill is early, early deficits. So early things you don't have, sort of growing up in... An environment that's really deprived or very violent or you know very neglectful then that that child has to learn to cope in different ways and some of those ways become very destructive or perverse or, or just unhealthy a simple version of that might be you you learn that you can't trust other people uh, so you, what you do is you withdraw inside yourself and you become very self, self-sufficient. self And I think that is absolutely true of Marianne Cotton. If you go back to her starting in life, I mean, obviously lots of people at that time from a working-class background would have had really impoverished lives and, and situations. Absolutely. But what you were describing, Nick, when you were sharing her story is... You know, a real sense that from a very young age, I think Mary was ten when her father died. She was eight when her father died. She means she had, she was she was the eldest. She had another younger sister who died in infancy herself, Mm -hmm. um, a younger sister, and she had a brother as well, which we don't know much about. So I don't know um, if he survived. So she was one of a number of siblings. But yeah, I mean, the father died when she was eight in quite a dramatic. So obviously very well, sudden. Pretty horrifying way. So uh, he fell down a mine shaft, and then I mean the image that keeps coming back to my mind when I think about her, about Mary, is is the image of her father's body being delivered to that family in a sack that said it was the property of the mining company that he died for. I mean, I oh just... my god! How 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 could anyone get over that? And just to know that here is my father being delivered in a bag. <laughs> And like we laughed about it on the episode to a point because of the stupidity, it's the absurdity of it all, of of just that it's farcical. But that happened. That was just here is a body in a bag. And can you please leave the house? And yeah, and then immediately <laughs> yeah. getting evicted. No time to to grieve or mourn or you know even just come together as a family. They were immediately sort of propelled into crisis. So I suppose what what that brings up in my mind for her and how she developed is. Something about an, a, a normalization of, of violence. You know, that's it's such a brutal mm. picture to have your father's body delivered in pieces in a bag. It kind of immediately normalizes, and you can't. You know, we don't actually know what her life was like before that. You know, we don't know. They can't have had much money, I imagine. Yeah. I imagine life yeah. is extremely difficult. So you can see that probably everybody in that family would have retreated and and started to see the world as a really unforgiving, punishing place. And therefore, you you sort of don't develop those same empathic skills because instead what you do is try to find ways to get what you need in an unforgiving environment. In terms of Mary, the number of murders... I mean, Nick, when you were talking it through, mm. 
death after death after death after death that went under. Absolutely. I mean, by some counts, I mean, if she had, in fact, killed everyone who people suspect she may have done, we're looking at like 21, mm. potentially up to 21 people, which is a horrendous amount of people. Um, and especially the vast majority of them being very young children. Yeah, a conveyor belt of people who she's just gone through in her short life yeah so what i mean we'll come to the the thought about her children later because i think that's really important Mm. you can see that there's not a value clearly in humanity and in relationships with people it's about what they give her to get what she needs out of them thinking back to her childhood as well the the thing that 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 keeps coming back um a value to life seems to be assigned at that really young age is that your father was just a worker and all he was was worth shoving into a bag. And this house is now ours. So it does feel like at a young age, you would probably be feeling like, well, your life is worth nothing. Or your father's life was worth nothing. Particularly for someone who goes on to assign worth to people's lives in order for her to gain it. But it does feel like that, you know, if you're presented with that, that human life is worth nothing if your father is delivered to you in such a horrible way. <laughs> that for the rest of your life you're going to think, well, what is my worth? Absolutely. And, you know, and I think it's true of the Victorian age generally too, if you think about, I don't know, sort of Oliver Twist and workhouse mentality, but you've, you've got that sense culturally as well as in her family that life is meaningless, it's worthless, it's just kind of numbers mm. really and it, the quality of life doesn't mean a thing. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think she probably learnt very, very early on that life is you know it's about survival and you've done a lot of work as well row in the past about personality disorders she has killed children repeatedly in this pattern so there's a few um a few ways of understanding what it means it's called filicide when a parent kills their own child there's a few different forms we've sort of started to understand different ways in which different, different reasons really why people why parents would commit that act some of it, it could be called something called altruistic, which sort of means the belief that, not, not actually true, but the belief in the parent's mind that that child would be better off without them, mm. uh, with, with, without living. Um, I mean, this, this would be a very benign understanding of Mary Ann Cotton. Um, I, mean, I think we can say that we don't true. think that that is the case here. You know, that is heart-wrenching in one way. You know, that like when you were saying that, I was feeling like, oh God, oh God, that's right. And then suddenly I had to actually check into myself and go, this is fucking Mary Ann Cotton. No, no. <laughs> Definitely not the reason here. But you've got others which are yeah. sort of... Um, maltreatment children being unwanted revenge on the spouse that kind of thing i mean i i don't know clearly but i suppose my interpretation not not the reason would be something along the lines of there's a sort of idea that uh mothers particularly for reasons which which will become clear in a sec quite often might see their child as an extension of themselves so rather than being a separate object but rather being a separate being with a mind of their own and a life of their own it, actually, they, they see it as a continuation of their self, if that makes sense. Mm. If, I don't know, but if that was potentially around with Mary Ann Cotton, then there's something then about ownership and possession and the same thought that it would be, then I can do what I like with them and I can get, you know, use them mm. as my own end, essentially, to get what I need. Because yeah. you don't see them as a separate being. It is grim that they're just seen as a commodity. Just sell them, get rid of them, they're worth money right now. Absolutely. I mean, also, I mean, at the, at the beginning, um, I mean, those children were worth money. I mean, had ins- life insurance policies taken out of them from her first husband, from William. And 
when those children died, she got paid for it. I mean, it, uh. it's a, a particularly perverse understanding, but I think it could be accurate, actually. Which could be one of you, I think you should mentioned earlier, the thought around versions of contraception being available in some ways at that time. Why did she keep having children? And, and part of that could be uh, a way to keep the man around her. You know, obviously at that point, women didn't have any mm. of their own financial income or security had to be in a relationship to survive yeah so it's a way of immediately getting an attachment with with a man yeah but i wonder if it's worse than that i actually wonder if <laughs> she maybe almost actively kept having children so that she could ensure their lives so that she could kill kill them and get them oh out. I, I mean that's a terrifyingly calculated it is oh it doesn't bear thinking about i agree with you ro i think it's there's something about that. Definitely using your feminine wiles and being pregnant will get you so much further. You know, you have to be provided for. You can ensnare a man. He has money. You can't be tried. You can't be convicted of a crime when you are pregnant. If you are pregnant during, you know, we talked about Christiana Edmonds before, um, who tried to shout out she was pregnant in a murder trial so she would have a stay of execution. So being pregnant is probably quite a wily ruse. Being pregnant half the time probably quite smart and then you can insure them oh yeah just well i can insure them or kill them because infantile death is so common the ruthlessness you know of the stance that she took mm. really um which which becomes particularly interesting at the end when you think about how she was caught because i have a big question in my mind why did she say Oh, he'll 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 probably go the same way as the other cottons yeah. sometime soon. Yeah. Why why did she let that slip? If she'd been getting away with it for twenty one murders, I'm really fascinated by that. Why did she reveal herself? That that is a that's a kicker of a question because we've had this before in several of the cases that we've covered in these ten episodes. We've had people reportedly saying, murmuring, "Oh, they will die soon." In in words to that effect. Now. On one hand, me and Nook talked about before this episode, witnesses suddenly come out of the woodwork when a story appears in the newspaper and go, oh yes, this person totally said this to me and I always knew they were a wrong one. And they come out with all of these supposed things that people said to them because they want fame and notoriety. But at the same time, there's a huge number of cases of serial killers and murderers who want to be caught, who want to be recognised. You want to be known. I did this. Look at me. Ah, ha, ha, ha. They kind of, there's a, there's a dark part of them that wants to be caught. Isn't that right, Nick? Well, I mean, it's one thing I just, just thought about. I mean, is it, I mean, as you say, I mean, she's got away with 20 odd murders at this point. Is it just a supreme overconfidence in her abilities that mm. I've got away with it for so long? They're not going to catch me. And she's just so blasé that she's not making, she doesn't make an effort to, to hide it or be as, secretive as we once. talked about this with with graham young nick we talked about how in his later crimes pushing the police to investigate thallium which was the poison yes again why why are these people standing up going i i did it i did but i didn't really but i did it but i didn't really i did it uh, i think nick your thought just now is is an interesting one about complacency if you haven't been caught it feeds uh, a rather narcissistic hugely narcissistic core part of you where you know you kind of end up believing you are kind of you're kind of god and you're that, good, that good and nobody else is you're not going to get found out which obviously mm. makes you more reckless and and that happens a lot you know even just watch some episodes of quacker <laughs> and you see <laughs> well, we get all our research from clearly <laughs> 
That's all I've done is watch Quacker. I'm, I'm not really a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Every single session you have with a client. But yes, I think I think there is so there's that sort of element of narcissism, like real pathological narcissism that. Um, that means that people are so deluded, really, that they really believe the myth that they are in control, essentially, so they won't get found out. There's a really good book for people that are interested, uh, a really sort of famous book about Marianne Cotton by uh, a man called David Wilson. But I read an interview with him. Basically, he's, he's done a lot of interviews with a lot of serial killers. And he said that he gets two types of letters sent to him frequently. One is people who are just sort of obsessed with individual killers. The others are from from serial killers from prison, angry that he's got facts in their case wrong, or that he sort of, (laughs) that actually they killed X, Y, and Z more numbers of victims than he's assigned to them. Yeah, and I think it's to do with this real narcissism, actually. So Sinead and I have done a number of these episodes, but it always tends to be the the, the female killers that always have the most horrific stories, or at least they inspire the most horror. So I was wondering why we find the idea of a female killer or female poisoner so much more unnerving or terrifying. Is there anything particular? Is it something, I mean, in my mind, you you expect a woman to be more nurturing and maternal and for them to have that completely twisted is probably something quite shocking. Uh, no, I, I agree, Nick. I think there is horror in in society specific to women who have committed these kinds of crimes. So if it's a woman who, especially, especially being a serial killer, actually, you know, one might be able to understand that, uh, you know, the sort of crime of passion idea, which is why it's more lenient. If in an argument with your with your lover, you, you know, you lost it for a moment and got really overwhelmed and then you stabbed him, then that's a sort of what is terrible, but it's a one-off event, self-contained. You can understand it was, you know, driven by the, the stress. But with a case like Marianne Cotton, what you have is, is firstly a woman who killed basically all of her children, 99% of her children. And that's that's its own particular horror that I think, honestly, we don't really know what to do with as a society. You know, it's, it's, it's actually quite unfair in the sense that it drives, uh, you know, the media, the tabloids, into much more of a frenzy. You know, we don't know how to countenance a woman doing those kind of acts. We, we attribute violence to men far, far, far more easily. And we're more comfortable with that. So it actually becomes, it's sort of, there's, there's a level of, of it being quite unfair to women who have committed these crimes because actually where we started, they, they normally come from very disturbing beginnings in themselves rather than attributing blame the whole time. I suppose part of where we've got to now, thankfully, is trying to understand why people commit those crimes and what drove them to it. Where does that come from? Why do people react so badly? Because I think we we need the notion that women are these sort of idealised, you know, and have always been, Madonna-type figures, that they are ultimately a mother. And, and that means they are nurturing, kind, feminine, homemaking, all of those things, clearly. Women are all sorts of things, far beyond that. But we need, as a, as a society, to believe that that's what women are and that's what will keep, sort of, in a way, in a primal way, that's what will keep society going. And we've all got, all of us have got these instincts, these drives, this violence, actually, within us. But when we see it expressed in a case like Marianne Cotton's or Mara Hindley in a modern-day context, we, it sort of throws up 
into focus a more universal truth that we don't want to acknowledge. And that's why it sends people, I think, into such a, a panic. Um, we can tolerate mm. the idea that men will be driven by testosterone, will get into fights, you know, will be the abuser. But the idea that women could be just as perverse, just as disturbed yeah. and have just as much violence inside them, actually, is just not a concept that we like to, to consider. I suppose what it does is it comes back to um, something really early and something really fundamental, which actually is in a Darwinian way about survival. Because fundamentally, if you start to believe and accept that the thing that you're reliant on can harm you, that's it, Mm. your whole existence is under threat. One of the more disturbing parts of the story as I was researching it, I got some interesting reactions out of you, Sinead, when I was telling the story, was that actually the manner of her her death, her execution yes. at the end. That really quite horrific, potentially a mistake, potentially entirely on purpose, that her hanging rope was so short, was far too short. Certainly abnormal. Yeah, absolutely. A violent and probably painful way to go i mean what are your thoughts on that row i mean would there be something what do you think how do you think the death went down i mean i i imagine it's it's sort of linked to what we were just saying about people's uh inability to tolerate women being that violent you know, she was the first female serial killer that means that at that moment in time this would have been completely um unheard of un you know unimaginable that a woman would be capable of killing 12 of her own children and 21 victims. So that would immediately, I think it would have generated, you talked, Sinead, about the media involvement in her case. Mm. They were actually quite integral in getting her convicted. I imagine that that the hanging going wrong, if it wasn't a mistake, which seems quite likely, that it was actually, um, you know, the hangman might have been paid off to make that mistake happen. This, this, was, this was not his first job. Uh, he had had a long career as a as an executioner mm. um, i mean it, it seems it seems it has to be really doesn't it a mm. two foot drop when it should be a six foot drop yeah with a very experienced hangman it has to have been set up really and i think it is because people were enraged and and probably really scared to discover that a woman had that potential it's interesting something you just said that that this was the okay the, the first serial killer of the time to be at the point where this has never happened before. We have never heard of a woman doing this. This is a completely new thing. Exactly. And must have been absolutely, entirely overwhelming. Do you know what's really interesting, actually, is that if you, if you do sort of do a bit more reading around it, she was uh, incredibly charismatic. Um, she was very likeable. She was seen as quite sort of affable. I mean, one way or another, she got all of these multiple men, lovers and husbands, yes, you know, yes. invested so in her. Th- how? How does she do this? This is the whole way through the story. But she has convinced so many people to, to to hop into bed with her or to father a child with her. So what is it that's done it? Is it the, the, the Well, the I mean, character? I think I mean, this, the, the, the last two, so James and Frederick, they, she was pregnant before they were they were married. So she has seduced them as on both occasions come into the house as a as a housekeeper or a nurse or something um and comforted those that's what they that's what they describe that's what they describe it as comforting um, those men here we go here's a pillow and a boob she's and she's become pregnant 
by that. And then even so, even so, with the comforting and all of that sort of thing, you don't marry that person afterwards. Well, no, I think no, I think at that time you do. No, I, 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 I would disagree. At that time, there was a lot. There were a lot of maids getting pregnant. A lot of people who shacked up with people and the housemaids could say, well, master got me pregnant. The master could say, she could have shacked anyone. She had nothing to do with yeah, me. But this, the, yeah, but you're, you're, you're talking about a very different social social situation that we are dealing with, with here. But she, as a maid, is going in as a nurse into these houses and getting men to marry her. How the fuck is she doing She's getting that? them to sleep with her first, which I pre- is probably a lot less difficult. Not less um, difficult. <laughs> I, will, I will admit it's a lot less difficult <laughs> that time to go and go here is my vagina exactly i think that's probably easier and then oh look i'm pregnant (laughs) now you have to marry again i i I still would say that the you know yes going in there and just going shag getting someone to marry you as a lower class kind of thing like these these are shipwrights they're not like huge in society what do you think Ro? well i imagine she used cocktails as a weapon (laughs) (laughs) Part of my game plan. So Nick, be very careful. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, actually what you were saying there, she she was pretty upwardly socially mobile, wasn't she? She went from very meagre working class beginnings to to getting I don't know if they were middle class, but quite a few quite a few of those men were standing above where she no, was. So skilled yeah, skilled workers, those people, absolutely. Um, so there's something incredibly powerful about it. You know, she was in control of the situation. She knew exactly what she wanted to get out of each of these interactions. Mm. When you've got more narcissistic traits, you, you become you, you're really good at getting what you want. <laughs> and because you see people as serving you a purpose, you actually learn to become charismatic, if that makes sense, because it gets you what you need. She obviously taught herself well. <laughs> she was... So out of all of this, how did she get away with it? Yeah, how I mean, did how... the bitch get away with it? She married when she was 20. She died when she was 40. So she's had 20 years. 20 years of killing. Of killing. Which is like a thousand years in... in... <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> 20 years is a thousand years of poisoned currency. In Victorian monies, Victorian years. How? How did this happen? I mean, literally everybody, her mother, everybody, her friends. Did she, ki- did she kill the husband? mother? Did she kill the mother? That's my question. I think she killed the mother. Oh, see, I don't know. Ooh. Oh, Ooh, a difference of opinion. Ooh. Oh, why do you not think it's so? Well, I don't mean... Okay, okay, in one corner we've got <laughs> mother dead. Well, perhaps I'm being too, too kind. But, I mean, she was there for nine days. Her mother was ill. She went to help. She was there for nine days before, and her mother died. So that seems like a very short... Yeah, but nine days in which you can do oh, a yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely, you can. <laughs> but I mean, on that one, I mean, all the others, there's something that she's gained out of it. She's gained an insurance or she's gained an inheritance or someone has gone out of the way. She got nothing from killing her mother. Apart from now, she had a daughter to look after because mm. her mother was looking after her, her granddaughter, Isabella. So now with her mother out of the way... Then Isabella has now got to be taken care of until okay, ding, we bump ding, her ding, off ding, too. Ding, ding. Round the corner one, corner <laughs> two, row. What do we say? <laughs> I'm just warming up. <laughs> um, just rope doping this guy right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I disagree completely because I think okay. she did get something out of killing her mother because potentially if the mother was ill, so the mother has hepatitis, she has to leave this household that she's, you know, worked pretty hard to get herself into. Then she has to go and nurse the mother, which would mean she would also have to take care of the child too. But maybe if the, if the mother had continued to live, she might have had to give up 
all of that life she's just crafted oh, for herself oh, yes. in order to stay and look after the mother if nobody else is available to do that. Resigned to looking mm-hmm. after a ailing mother for years to come. No, that's a fair point. In a much more impoverished, you know, lifestyle yeah. than the ones which she's Stop agreeing with her. Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's a sensible... But I, sensible think, I think you like her, Nick. I'm going to go yeah. with secret option three. I'm going to go practice. Practice. Practice on the well, she killed a lot of people. She'd then. killed a lot of people before that, though. Yes, but not adults. <laughs> well, well, oh, no, she'd husbands. killed her first two, husband. Three husbands. Two husbands. Two, two, two husbands before. Two husbands. More practice. <laughs> or there's another option, which is which is scarier, that she just discovered she got quite a thrill. Yes, yes. From killing people. Thrill, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a terrifying thing, is that there's no material gain, or if I do this, I'm going to get that. It's just because I like it. Because I can. Because I can. Imagine how how powerful it would be. I mean, hopefully none of us have had the experience. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't Probably have to, to really. imagine, though. <laughs> I mean, we still don't know what was in Nick's cocktails, so... Well, we're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, imagine how powerful. That is ultimate control. You are, like Shipman, you are literally God if you can take another life. Oh, it's, it's, oh that's chilling. This is, it's this chilling. Is a it's fair and terrifying point. I don't know why it is about that more than anything else that that kind of god mentality because it's probably the thing we push away most really subconsciously because there is a thing that in her mind one potential there's a reason for it there's there's a gain everything she's done so far has been for a purpose or been to get towards some goal which i think as i say it's not an understandable thing but it's a in a certain mindset it's a logical thing to do but to do it because i wanted to or because i enjoyed it is such a completely alienly terrifying thing there's no logic behind it you can't there's no way you can argue the reason why it's the most terrifying i did it because i wanted to or because i enjoyed it but it just goes against all of our sort of basic human instincts around empathy and you know connection and needing to be around others to live if you actually just see people as disposable and you're you know you actually actively want to commit murder you've got to wonder why you know why is cracker and (laughs) morse and you know all of there's so much true crime uh documentaries and things around at the moment they're constantly on tv like why are we so fascinated by the minds of killers because we are we are well, thank God we are, because we'll never podcast otherwise. It's <laughs> <laughs> worked out well for you guys. Yeah. I have two questions. Ro, why Cracker above all of, all of the other... Cro- why Cracker? Why is Cracker the good one? Uh, oh, listeners? well, there's a question. Uh, maybe I'm just really old-fashioned. <laughs> I think there is something about uh, Robbie Coltrane. He's amazing, isn't it? Like, he's brilliant, isn't he? And it, it's partly maybe his... But also, I think maybe... I might be completely wrong about this, but I don't think there were very many other other dramas before that that were doing that, that were really examining the, the mindset of killers. No, so that's I guess, true. If you've never watched Cracker, go and watch it and find it. It is dark absolutely watch it it is it's touch of frost to shame oh for, yes most certainly it's either poirot or cracker that's <laughs> all i can cope with on a sunday <laughs> so i'm gonna go watch cracker now i haven't seen it for oh, years so I'll, get, oh. I'll find the box set on something i'm sure i know oh god stop like, the podcast now yeah I know. stop, so stop listening go and watch cracker. Thing is, it can't be a daytime thing it's cracker's not a daytime thing but when it gets dark get a glass of red wine and some crackers. About 20 fags as well, because they're always <laughs> they're they're all, they're all bloody chain-smoking throughout the whole thing. <laughs> get a pack of fags, get a few bottles of red wine, and a few snacks just to keep you going, and watch Cracker. That's the answer to self-isolating. <laughs> <laughs> so my next question, Ro, if you could pick any poisoner 
I will open it up. Poisoner or murderer or serial killer, who would you like to speak to, if you could, out of all time? It's a great question. Who would I choose? Who would you put on the couch? I'm thinking over the, over the phone. <laughs> Nick standing in front of you in a scary in a scary mask. Nick Jason from Friday the Thirteenth wasn't a real person. She can't speak. Well, actually, you know what? Fuck it. Let's 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 bring in let's bring in. Films. Oh, well, Hannibal Lecter then has to be if it's fictional because he's absolutely fascinating and horrific. And Anthony Hopkins's performance is is mesmerising. I'd love to, I'd love to to get to know his origins, <laughs> his beginnings, as it were. Okay. And real life, who who would be on the couch uh, behind some glass? <laughs> it feels like an easy answer, I suppose, but possibly the Yorkshire Ripper, possibly Peter Sutcliffe. His was a really interesting case, and he was very hard yeah. to pin down. Talk about someone who got away with it for a long time. There's something about him and Charles Bronson that they, they've never never really taken taken on any responsibility truly for for what they've done from you know from what one can read about them. Uh, Charles Charles Bronson actually is uh, mm. really. Uh, uses art therapy brilliantly. Slightly different answer to your question, but I would be really interested to talk to Charles Bronson or Peter Sutcliffe to see whether it, whether it's possible that actually you could start mm. to develop a different kind of relationship with them. Ooh. Ro, I've got the most important question of all for you. What is your favourite cocktail? Cosmopolitan, without a doubt. <laughs> oh, that's a very quick answer. It's, it's really my favourite. It makes me feel like I'm on holiday. I always have it when I am on holiday. And I love it. It's actually not always on the menu, which is quite annoying. Yes, because it's <laughs> shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, I, dis- no I disagree. I, with I agree that. with me. No, it's too sweet. Why not? What, what's what's ever done to you? It's sweet, and it's it's just not. It's, there's better. There's better, bro. Better out there. What's yours? Oh, I couldn't possibly pick one. <laughs> <laughs> That's lucky. You know, to be fair, I'm more of a sharp and sour kind of cocktail person. Or just sharp and sour water. person. <laughs> I'm a cold-hearted bitch. Yes. <laughs> oh fuck off, Nick! I have never seen you order a fucking cosmopolitan oh, never, in I've your made, life. I've made them at home. You've made yes, me because Ro was there and you bitched to me the entire time in the kitchen. Well, that I didn't. <laughs> Ro, do you have a favourite poison? Uh, oh, what would my favourite poison be? I don't know if I'd say it was my favourite. Uh, I, I was quite attracted to mercury. Ooh, <laughs> Just nice. Just am. Nice. Good choice. Uh, good choice. Probably Mercury. So, good, good choice. Slightly mad hattery. Yeah, that we feels like alright. That feels fitting. Yeah, no, I approve. Wonderful. <laughs> so we have been the people inside the Poisonous Cabinet on this extra episode with Roana Bond. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Ro, for yes, joining us. We are completely drunk <laughs> <right> now. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>